gospel reading today comes from the gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their nets and their father in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Well, one of the main purposes for celebrating the season of Epiphany is to remind the church that Jesus of Nazareth has been revealed as the Christ sent from God to redeem, ransom, and save us. As we noted last week, there are many ways in which this season reminds us of these truths. Jesus is revealed as the Christ to the Magi. He's revealed as the Christ in his baptism. And in his conversation with Nathaniel that we talked about last week, he reveals that as the ladder into heaven, he is the only way to the Father. Now interestingly, our text for this morning also reminds us that Jesus is the Christ not only by these amazing examples of the manifestation of his glory, but he is also the Christ because of the message that he brings, which is the gospel of the kingdom of God. Mark Gospel is the shortest of the four, and it moves pretty quickly, which is the reason why he constantly uses the word immediately throughout. And so as such, Mark doesn't spend a whole lot of time on what we would call exposition, because his sole concern, his one theme, is showing us, is helping us to grasp that Jesus is the Christ. See, unlike Matthew and Luke, who begin with genealogies and stories of his birth, and even unlike John, who begins with a theologically rich prologue, Mark simply begins his gospel with this statement. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, Christ, the Son of God. But, just because his gospel is shorter and just because it moves quickly through the events of the life and ministry of Jesus, doesn't mean that Mark isn't as theologically rich as the other three. In fact, Mark actually says quite a lot with very few words, such as here in this first verse, in verse 14, where he says this, again, he says, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. See, Mark's purpose for this particular verse, for verse 14, is to give his readers a very clear transition from the ministry of John, the forerunner, to the ministry of Jesus, the Christ. 
And this transition from John to Jesus has a very specific theological purpose rather than just a chronological purpose. You see, chronologically, the time between Jesus' temptation and John's arrest could have very well been anywhere from six months to maybe even a year. The Gospel of John even gives us an idea that John and Jesus' ministries even overlapped some. But theologically, Mark quickly, or he immediately, to use his trademark word, he quickly wants to emphasize for us this transition. And that this is a transition not only of ministries, but a transition of ages. A transition from the old age of promise that has now shifted into the new age of fulfillment, found in the arrival and in the manifestation of Jesus the Christ. See, John the Baptist, John the Forerunner, serves as the last in the line of the Old Covenant prophets. And so, he stands with a foot planted firmly in each age. And as the Messianic Forerunner, John announces the need to repent in light of the coming New Age. But in Jesus' manifestation as the long-awaited Christ, we now have the revealing of the arrival of the New Age. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, we actually read this. And it really speaks to this idea of a transition of ages. In John 3, we read that a debate broke out between John the Baptist's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing, or this idea of Jew Jewish purification washing. And so John's disciples went to John and he said, Rabbi, the man that you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one whom you identified as the Messiah, well, he is also baptizing people. And everyone is going to him instead of coming to us. So another way to say this is, is something like, uh, John, he's stealing our thunder. Aren't you going to do something about it? But John replies and he says, he says, no. He says, no one can receive anything unless God gives it to them from heaven. And you yourselves know how plainly I told you I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for the Messiah. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and to hear his vows. Therefore, says John, he says, my joy is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. So this increasing, decreasing, decreasing is the same sentiment that Mark writes here in verse 14, now after John was arrested. He's telling us the same thing. He says, the transition has now begun. The forerunner is decreasing. And now the Christ is increasing. And Mark's emphasis on John being put into prison before Jesus begins preaching reveals that the key purpose of the Old Covenant, the idea to prepare the people for Christ, this key purpose has now been completed. And once Christ came, the time of preparation was fulfilled. But John's arrest is not the only marker that Mark uses to show us this transition of ages. Another marker he uses for the, 
is, is the purpose of Jesus' ministry, which is found completely in his message. And so he says this in verse 15. So again, just reading verses 14 and 15 again, he says, Now after John was arrested, the transition has begun, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The Lord Jesus himself proclaims to us that this new age of fulfillment has now dawned by these first two clauses of verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In the Greek, this phrase, the time is fulfilled, can be more literally translated as filled up or as the word completed. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes, he says this, he tells them, he says, when the fullness of time had come or when the fullness of time had been filled up or had been completed, God then sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the arrival of Jesus, all redemptive and historical circumstances of the old age of promise were fulfilled. And now in Jesus, God fulfills all of his covenant promises. And so these two clauses, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, are parallel and they are related. And Mark helps us to actually see this in the language that he uses here. Because in the Greek, this, this phrase, close at hand, so the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, this phrase can also mean has arrived or has drawn near. And then theologically, this phrase, the kingdom of God, is shorthand really for, for God's final work of salvation found in the Christ. And so by combining these two phrases, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, Christ is revealed to us both in his work and in his message. The kingdom is near, or the kingdom has arrived, because the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom is near because the Christ has arrived. And the kingdom is still near because the Spirit of Christ has been poured out upon his people and the Spirit of Christ indwells his people and the Spirit of Christ empowers his people to proclaim his same message around the world. And so because the time has been fulfilled or filled up or completed, Jesus tells us in the rest of this verse, in verse 15, that there is only one response to the arrival of the kingdom of God, and that is to repent and believe in the gospel. Again, he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The definition of repent, and we've heard this a lot of times, but the definition of repent simply means to do something like a total about-face, or to turn completely around. The word in the Greek literally means like to change one's mind. Repentance is a complete reorientation to a life that is totally centered upon Jesus. Whereas belief means acknowledging that we have a dependence on God. But let's be honest. At the end of the day, 
neither of these things are easy for any of us to do. Repentance and belief are hard work. Harder for some folks than for others, but hard work nonetheless. But because it's so hard, we are quick to forget that repentance and belief are completely related, just like the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand are completely related. Repentance and belief are two sides to the same coin. St. Jerome once wrote that repentance is the mingling of both our joy and our sorrow. He goes on and he says this. He says, The sweetness of the apple makes up for the bitterness of the root. He says, The hope of gain makes pleasant the perils of going to sea. The expectation of health, he says, mitigates the nauseousness of medicine. But then he closes with this. He says, So too, then, the one who desires the joy of belief swallows down the bitterness of repentance. Matthew Henry, the Puritan pastor from the, from the UK in the 1700s, he says this. He says, By repentance, we must lament and forsake our sins. And by belief, we must receive the forgiveness of our sins. He says, by repentance, we must give glory to our Creator, whom we have offended. And by belief, we must give glory to our Redeemer, who came to save us from our sins. And then he says this. He says, both repentance and belief must go together. We must not think either that reforming our lives will save us without trusting in the righteousness and grace of Christ, or that trusting in Christ will save us without the reformation of our hearts and our lives. He says Christ has joined repentance and belief, and they mutually assist and befriend each other. And so because they go together, we need to be reminded that in the Greek, both of these words are written as active imperative verbs, meaning that they are ongoing, they're active, and that they're commands, they're, they're imperative. And both of these verbs emphasize an enduring activity. We are to actively repent in an ongoing way, just as we are to actively believe in an ongoing way, or we are actively to grab onto or actively cleave to the gospel. And while our salvation has been fully and completely accomplished by Christ, repentance and belief perfectly remind us of our already not yet existence in the kingdom of God. Ongoing repentance and ongoing belief are meant to be the buoys that we cling to as we actively repent and as we actively believe in the gospel. And what we have in the remainder of this text and the calling of the first disciples shows us what active repentance and active belief looks like. And so again, reading this, I just want to read those five verses again. It says, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he, meaning Jesus, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. 
And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, I want to back up for a second because compared to what we saw last week in John's Gospel in chapter 1, where we saw uh, the calling of Peter, excuse me, yeah, the calling of Peter and the calling of Philip and Andrew, and then Philip going to Nathaniel and Nathaniel coming. All this calling of the first disciples there in John's Gospel, compared to that, what we have here in this passage, and this passage actually in verses 16 to 20 is shared between both Mark and Matthew. Luke has a few similarities, but, but he gives us more details to this part of the story. But compared to what we saw last week in John's Gospel, this passage seems almost somewhat, shall we say, contradictory for a lot of readers of the Bible, especially readers that are coming at it with some skepticism. And so they might ask the question like, well, why can't this read like any other historical work or any other biographical work? Well, the reason is, is because this is not any other historical or biographical work. Scholars and pastors and theologians have tried to make sense of these quote-unquote contradictions for 2,000 years. And they've done so by claiming that, well, there must have been multiple callings of these disciples, which is why we have different accounts. Or they might claim that, well, these first disciples must have been somewhat aware of Jesus and his ministry. Now, I will readily admit that, like we mentioned earlier, if the time period between Mark 1, verse 13 and Mark 1, verse 16 was six months to a year, then there's a very real possibility that these four had heard of Jesus before this event. And honestly, I'm fine with that explanation. However, <laughs> and that is a giant however, at the same time, I think to use those explanations and then move on from them misses the point and the purpose of the gospel accounts. See, in our attempts to make scripture, quote-unquote, make sense, I think we tend to ignore its purpose. And we can't really help it. Right? We should show ourselves a little grace here because we can't really help it. We are products of the Enlightenment. Right? We have 400 plus years now of all of this philosophy and theology forcing our minds to think this way. We live in a time where we must have measurable, observable evidence for every single claim. Otherwise, our brains have been trained to reject it. And while all four Gospels display certain chronological orders, chronology is not their main purpose. Their main purpose is to reveal Christ as the incarnate God-man redeemer. And their purpose is to do so in multiple ways. Like we mentioned last week, John is concerned about themes, particularly the themes of light and sight. 
and how Christ has made God visible to us. How Jesus, as the light of the world, has brought God to light. Matthew, we mentioned this all through Ordinary Time last year, Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. And so his main purpose is to display Jesus as the fulfillment of prophetic testimony and prophetic types. Luke, who was both a physician and a historian, is the most concerned with chronology and historicity. And he gives us historical and cultural details to place the events of the ministry and life of Jesus in their appropriate historical framework. He does something similar with his with the Acts of the Apostles. But Mark, again, Mark, he's concerned with one theme and one theme only, and he has one purpose, and that is to help us grasp that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior sent by God. And it is this theme, Jesus is the Christ, it is this theme that informs how he records the calling of the disciples. And so Mark shows us here in this passage that how Jesus is the Christ, by how he shifts the rabbi-disciple paradigm. Look there again in your Bibles at verse 17. Again, we read this. So again, Jesus is passing along the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon and Andrew. And then he says this. He says, follow me. These are key words in this paradigm shift. He says, follow me. This call to follow is the call of discipleship. It's the call to a relationship of learning from a master and a teacher. Now culturally and historically, there's nothing uncommon about this kind of relationship. Discipleship, or if you want to use the term apprenticeship, to a particular rabbi was very, very commonplace in the first century. And one that we have honestly been called and equipped by Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures to imitate. However, in this type of system, in this rabbi-disciple system, it was normally the student who would seek out a rabbi and they would ask him permission to follow and learn from him. Here's how this would look, just historically, to give you some context. Most boys in this, in, in this culture, in first century Judea, uh, Jewish culture, would all go, all boys would go to what we will call Torah school, right? And they would go to school until a certain age, usually somewhere between 10 and 12 years old. Then, at 10 or 12, they would be assessed, they would be tested, but they would also have their family lineage taken into account. And based upon those factors, they would either then be passed on to higher learning, or they would be sent home to learn the family trade, because that would be what they would do for the rest of their lives. Like, something like, I don't know, being fishermen. <laughs> and if, if they were passed on to higher education, then a young man could then seek to apprentice himself to a rabbi if that rabbi granted him permission to do so. That's how this system worked. But notice, notice in verse 17, there's a difference with Jesus. Jesus says to them, 
follow me. Jesus approaches the disciples. And Jesus invites the disciples to follow him. He doesn't wait on them. He goes to them. There are very intentional similarities here to the way Elijah calls Elisha in 1 Kings 19. The Septuagint of 1 Kings 19, verse 20, reads this. It says, Elisha responds to Elijah's call, and Elisha says, I will follow behind you, or I will follow after you. In the Masoretic Hebrew text of that same verse, it reads this way, I will walk after you, or I will walk behind you. What's neat about looking at both of these translations together, the the Greek and the Hebrew, is that they both display a very important rabbi-disciple principle. And that is the principle known as walking in the dust of your rabbi. Walking in the dust of a rabbi means that you follow his way of life. Or that you follow so closely behind him that the dirt and the dust from his sandals could literally fling back onto your feet and fling back onto your clothes. That you would be walking so closely with him that his smell would cling to you and it would scent your hair and it would scent your clothes and it would even scent the very air of the room that you walk into. Walking in the dust of your rabbi meant that you are so closely identified with your rabbi that people can know who your rabbi is simply by looking at you and by being around you. And what's so fascinating is in how Mark highlights Jesus' paradigm-shifting invitation to follow him to these first disciples. Notice here, I just want to read this again in verses 16 and verses 19. We see this. These men are not actively searching for the Messiah. Like the rest of their people, I'm sure they were longing for him just as much as we long for him to return. But they were not pursuing him. And we know this by the way Mark writes verses 16 and 19. Again, look at this. He says, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then verse 19, he says, And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were doing something. They were in their boat, and they were mending their nets. The Greek term that Mark uses here in verse 19 for mending can also be translated this way. It can be translated as preparing for a purpose. Meaning that they were preparing their nets to go to work again. Simon and Andrew, as we just read in verse 16, were busy at work. They were casting their nets into the sea because they were fishermen. Over in chapter 2, verse 14 of Mark's Gospel, he, t- he says this about Levi. He says that Levi was sitting at his tax booth. This is a similar verb, a similar way in which Mark writes this. And Mark's point is that none of these men were actively following the Messiah. They were going about their business as usual. And then, he came for them. He sought after them. 
just as he seeks after us. So when we read here in Mark 1, 18 and 20, that these disciples left everything, including their mended nets, including their fathers, including their boats, and including their livelihoods, that's when, that's the moment that they walked behind Christ. It was then that they began to actively walk in the dust of their rabbi. And they began to do so by the work that he called them to, which is the exact same work that he calls each and every one of us to. And it's this, to be fishers of men. Follow me, he says, and I will make you become fishers of men. To be fishers of men means to walk and follow so closely to Jesus that we are equipped and we are empowered to continue his ministry of calling people out of sin and death and calling them into a life into the kingdom of God which has arrived in the incarnation in the life the ministry the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ to be fishers of men is exactly what it looks like to actively repent and to actively believe in the gospel. To be fishers of men is exactly what it looks like to be actively acknowledging that the time is fulfilled, that the time is completed, and that the kingdom of God has indeed arrived. This is what it means and looks like to be a disciple. This is what it means and looks like to follow closely in the dust of our Rabbi Jesus. So may we who claim Christ follow after Christ. And may we who claim Christ smell like Christ and act like Christ and think like Christ and be so identified with Christ that every single person who encounters us might also come to know him and to follow him. The time is fulfilled, says the Lord Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel.